The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. You go and check me. (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Elaine Hudson is an actor, director, producer, teacher. She trained at NIDA and has worked in theatre, film and television. Her directing credits include Endgame, The Lady from Dubuque, Holds Apart, The Death of Peter Pan, After the Fall, Seven Little Australians, The Man Who Came to Dinner, and A Touch of Paradise. Acting credits include a celebrated turn as Elizabeth Proctor in Richard Werrett's oft-mentioned The Crucible, and Mary Stewart, Mother Teresa is Dead, The Women of Lockerbie, Box, Rope, and quotations from Mazi Tung. In 2009, Elaine performed in A Streetcar Named Desire, directed by Liv Ullman, for the Sydney Theatre Company, touring to Washington and New York. In 2010, at Teatro Cortil in Bolzano, Italy, Elaine premiered a group-devised solo performance inspired by life and work of Emily Dickinson. In 2012, Elaine took part in a performance of poems by Miyazama Kenji at Theatre X in Ryogoku, Tokyo, directed by Roger Pulvers. It is indeed a rich tapestry which Elaine has woven in her pursuit of artistic endeavour. She is passionate about all forms and her academic investigation of each equips her with extensive knowledge and a broad experience of theatre making. I adore any encounter with Elaine, so I cannot wait to share this stage's conversation with you, so you can see exactly what I mean. I'd love to uh, interview Margaret Throsby. That'd be great, wouldn't it? I think she'd be happy to. (laughs) Well, fingers (laughs) fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Um, It's uh, it's lovely to see you again, as always. (laughs) As is always the case, we haven't stopped talking since you walked in the door. We haven't talked since I walked. We haven't stopped. We haven't stopped talking. I know. So much. There's so much to catch up on. Well, that's right. People we've seen, shows we've seen. Yeah, that's right. Um. Have you read any good books lately? <laughs> <laughs> Funny you should ask that. My favourite book recently, yes, I'm, I'm reading, well, I'm reading um, at the moment a book in French by Annie Ernaud, who just won the Nobel Prize for literature. It's a book about a, an affair she had with a Russian diplomat. It's very um, erotic and um, 
<laughs> and a bit bewildering at times, but I love it. I'm loving it. Almost as exciting as um, Sir Michael Redgrave's Love Life, which I explored in his other book, in the, in the recent, not a recent biography, but it's a book called Secret Dreams, mm. and it was fantastic. I think that's how we uh, originally connected backstage. We're in a show together in the dressing room. On books. Yeah, on books. But but in particular, theatre books. Theatre books. Yeah, biographies. Yeah, because I had... I've always been a reader. Um, always, from when, from Enid Blyton was in, in kindergarten, right up. And and then when I went... I don't think I had a big theatre collection, but when I went to NIDA, um, Alexander Hay was my acting teacher. And I remember saying to him once, I must have come across the great Italian actress, Eleonora Dusa. I said, I said, Dusa, you know, it's Eleonora Dusa. And he said, oh, Elaine, I have a book. <laughs> and so, and I, he took me up that old White House, up the back stairs and, and got this most beautiful book about Eleonora Dusa, Dusa. And of course that, and I, then I read, and I had many, 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 many books, many, which I've still got, British theatre. And then gradually I looked a little bit over to the States and I've got a whole lot of American books but the English theatre books were really part of my life, probably because of Alex. But um, I think you, I mean, not many, then I, not many actors, I don't know why, some actors love reading, um, some actors love reading acting books, but a lot of actors don't read acting books. And I sometimes think it's because if you're not working, for, there was a point where I stopped reading theatre books because I found it too distressing because I hadn't been on the stage or, it's always great to read a theatre book um, when you've done a play because you know, for example, Michael Redgrave, just the anxieties, the terrors of, of going on stage. And I've just done, I did a big production of Pierre Gint and my lovely Michael Shell was doing the lighting and I was sort of warming up on the stage and with my walking stick and just doing stuff. And it was, and he said, oh, you're, you, you won't be nervous. No, you're okay. And I thought, I thought, oh my God, little do you know. It's, it's terrifying every time, really. And it's really heartening to read the books about actors who have a long life. And you just see how you have to ride the waves of um, anxiety about performance, unemployment, um, having to do it every night, having to cope with people who say appalling things to you just before you open. Yeah. Um, Olivier, there's an amazing section in the in the Red Grave when Olivier marches into his dressing room after a performance of The Master Builder and and says the most appalling things to him. And I'm thinking, but we've all been there. And we survive it. <laughs> we, so yeah. The pathways are fascinating also about how people got to be where, where they arrived at. Well, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because um, many of your listeners will know... Um, Michael Redgrave's father died in Australia, mm. Roy Redgrave, and he's buried at um, the cemetery, part of Waverley. It's, um, uh, it's near a headland. It's um, yeah, out near Bondi. Yeah, out near Bondi. Yeah. And um, Lynn Redgrave finally, there's a head, a stone on it now. And Michael Redgrave came twice to Australia and never found it, which wasn't surprising. I have a friend there who went there recently. He still couldn't find it. But um, so. Michael Redgrave, this lack of a father, one of the things of Albee, of course, who was proud of not knowing who his parents were. Um, Michael Redgrave, this father who he did, had no memory of, but his mother lived, of course, a long life, so he had lots of stories about Roy, who, this actor who died in his 50s. He had a lot of work here. He was in films. He did a lot of work, but died in, like almost like buried by his current um, wife, who really he shouldn't have been married to because he had never divorced his other wife, this extraordinary story of this man and 
and Michael fascinated and a bit frightened also by this father he didn't know but who was an actor and that connection in families um, like, I mean I some people often said to me oh you know you're the first actor in the family and I was recently going through some family papers mum had a cousin who she adored um, Patrick um, Patrick Foley who did stacks and stacks of things at um, Parramatta Musical Society and his brother Ted Foley there's a place in the Antarctic named after Ted because he then went to the Antarctic but he was the treasurer at Parramatta Musical Society and my auntie Martha she'd made the tea so I thought oh that's where it began that's where the theatre came Pat Foley was a great friend of Peter Canar and one of the last times I saw Patrick he gave me this beautiful photo of these four boys together I don't know where a colander and peas in a little kitchen maybe at a holiday place up the coast Peter Canar and Patrick and I didn't know the other two blokes Shelling peas. Shelling peas. <laughs> and um, so um, it was really lovely to see that because of the connection. I thought, ah, that's obviously there. And it explained, I suppose, also why mum loved so much my theatre, even though some of the plays I did were not quite <laughs> to my parents' taste. But they still came and mum always sent me flowers on opening night, no matter what play it was. <laughs> and that's something you uh, continue yourself. Yes, I mean, yes. There's no, I've never had an opening night without flowers from Elaine. Yes, I'm well, sure I think there's it's a lot of actors like that. Well, it's important, I think. Um, well, it's part of the tradition, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And, the, and I love flowers and uh, they go wild for them in New York, of course. I remember at the opening of Streetcar at BAM. There were huge flowers all, all at the stage door in these amazing arrangements and vases and uh, mostly for Liv and for Kate. <laughs> some for Jo. <laughs> Any for you? Oh, yes, 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 yes. yes. Because Mum had sent some from Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> the other big attraction with theatre books, um, biographies about actors, is the gossip. Well, yes. You see, Alex was a great one for gossip. Um, but is it gossip... I mean, it's it's sort of life, isn't it? I mean, I yes, it, it, I mean, it's, it's interesting, especially in this kind of interview. You think, hmm, and often um, that's why the Redgrave was great, because I mean, Redgrave wrote an autobiography, which is it's okay, but it's not great, and it's because he, he conceals his entire private life, which is okay. I mean, Gilgood can write a book, wonderful books about the theatre. We don't know anything about his private life. And it's, it's not important because he's not deciding to tell you a little bit. He's telling you nothing. But, but, but the later biographies, of course, told you quite a lot. So his books are fabulous. But I knew that the Michael Redgrave was not satisfying, even when I read it years ago. And it was because he told you something of his private life, but it, it wasn't his private life. Um, it was because the private he, life he wanted us he to He wanted know. us to know. and. His, you know, his bisexuality, he had long-term relationships with men and, and he said, there's a lovely part at the end of books, quite heartbreaking, and he tells Corin, his lovely son, and, and Corin says, well, Dad... And so, but he was... He had really, really um, very... One particular man, like, really happy, fulfilling, wonderful, wonderful relationships and all fine um, in his life, but it was all balanced and... But the secrecy of it, I think, was a worry to him. But so reading that book um, by, um, it, I forgot his name, Strachan, I forgot his first name. The, um, it, 
it's not gossipy. Sometimes you can read a book and it's just, it is, it was respectful. It's like Marlena Dietrich's daughter wrote that book. Mm. Well, it's full of gossip, but it's loving gossip. It's not, it's not cruel because, as you know, in the theatre, we can all be cruel. And, you know, you can say, oh, it's terrible, you know, awful, I hated that. And, yeah. and, it's, and it shows no real understanding of, what, of everything that goes into a theatre production, as you know. You, yeah. It's hard, you know. And yeah. Yes, perhaps gossip is the wrong term because it, because it comes with a, a sense of toxicity. Yeah. It's more uh, wonderful anecdotes about life. Well, I love... Well, Alex was a great one for anecdotes and, and um, it, well, our whole teaching was probably anecdotes. Um, he, he would just tell stories. And, but he was also kind. That's what I liked about Alex. He never, I never heard him say a cruel word to anyone. And when I was completely ignorant of so many things, I mean, I, I came from like a, I mean, I did speech and drama at Monty, at North Sydney, grew up with football and mass, you know, it was, that was my background. My theatrical background was the football, rugby league, and, um, and, uh, and going to um, mass well, for quite a long time. All the rituals of the Catholic mass, that was all part of my life. I was very disappointed. I know in kindergarten wasn't cast as the Virgin Mary. <laughs> I, was, I was this terrible nondescript person at the end of the queue. I think one of my brothers had a more leading role as one of as Joseph, but I. So I was a bit worried, upset about that. So, uh, theatre books favourites. What, what are some of the um, the great reads that you've had that that have stayed with you? Well, I mean, the, the, in not in our I mean Theatre Street, um, the Kasavina book is fantastic which is those fantastic stories about Nijinsky. Um, Ellen Terry, um, biographies of Ellen Terry. Um, the Gilgood ones I, I love. I've, I've read his books a long time ago. Um, one that you've returned to me today, the Jack O'Brien book. Jack Be Nimble. Yeah. So he's, he's got a new one coming out um, this month, um, Jack in a Box. Ah, right. And the um, Michael Blakemore ones, now talk about gossip. Stage blood. And it's not read. real blood. But it might well be. And of course, you have a Peter Hall connection there yourself, yeah, so, which we may, may or may not explore. So, so, that, so I found those books amazing because I had read his, um, what's his novel? Michael Blakemore wrote the... Uh, see, uh, state, Scenes from a... No, 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 season. And it's based on his season where, keeping a connection with the Redgraves, Vanessa was a young actress. I read Eileen Atkins' autobiography recently. Right. That was amazing. She talks about Vanessa Redgrave. But Michael Blakemore worked in a company with, and Michael was the, the main actor, and uh, Vanessa was in it. Would it, have, would it have been at, I don't think it was at Stratford. Michael Blakemore was a young actor, as you know, mm-hmm. but was told he wouldn't amount to anything. And so became a director. Became right. a director. And, uh, um, yeah, so I don't, but that book was my first Michael Blakemore. It's a novel. I know John Gregg loved it. Alex Buzo loved it. So I got my own copy and I'd like to read it again now because I know more about the real people behind it. Yeah. He's a young actor who thinks he's going to go places and he hears people at a party say, oh, he'll never amount to anything. Yeah. And um, he's sort of, he's a, like Aussie taking his surfboard out and an amazing life. I mean, he did that wonderful production here. Only thing I've ever seen of his of Copenhagen with um, Jane Harders and um, John Gaydon and Mike Colin Friels. It was stunning. And also a wonderful film, which is really mentioned now, called Country Life, based on Uncle Vanya. Ah, yes, and, yes, yes, uh, yes. he was in it himself, and, yeah. and Googie Withers, and yeah. Murray Fields, and Sam Neill, and great yeah. cast. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But Stage Blood is a great, that's one of the most exciting reads I've ever had about the theatre, you know, his time, 
at the at the national with uh, with Peter. Yeah, Hall. all of that it was interesting. Um, I'm reading um, John Clark's book recently, and I know it was a much more um, dramatic story, the story of the national. I mean, it was scarifying in many ways what happened, all the build up to that, and Olivier and all the skullduggery. But reading John's book, um, I had no idea that the I was in the first season of what was the Sydney Theatre Company, but the old tote, which was dying, um, when I left NIDA I was part of the Young Toad Company and we did, my first job was um, playing the maid in Ferenc Molnar's The Wolf and understudying Helen Morse and um, Robin Ramsey, Dennis Olsen was fantastic and um, Eve Wynne, this old actress, she'd stand backstage massaging her hands and Philippa Baker and I used to play my recorder outside the window of the parade until Robin Ramsey told me to stop. And um, so well, I... recorder is a hideous I know, instrument. I know, hideous. Um, so, um, so, um, and then I, so I, that was the, the young tote and, and Robin Lovejoy directed The Matchmaker. So we did that at the, um, at the Opera House with um, Carol Burns and Tony Lebow and Jones Bilcon. Doreen Warburton took over from, um, to, from Dolly because I think Gloria Dawn was meant to play the role. Um, Ron Hadrick um, was in it. He was played the the main Horace Van, Horace Van and he'd play practice his golf swings before he went off on stage, and that. So and then of course that died, and then John Clark and Elizabeth Butcher presided over this highly original year where they invited um, different companies, culminating with of course the Nimrods Venetian Twins. Before that was the Jane Street um, Caucasian Chalk Circle, um, and yep. I played Grusha. Um, in that production and before that I think it was Devil's Disciple Q Theatre I think the ensemble did Morning Becomes Elector and Bobby Lewis came over from the States to do it and the first production um, I probably left out a theatre company but then I think they wanted that to continue but the Australia Council didn't want that and so they then um, approached Richard Where it to they wanted a, a an artistic director I was speaking to um, uh, my very good friend Roger Pulvers the other day because we've just recently worked together in Japan and he said, Elaine, I was with Richard when he it was announced he got the job. He said, two bottles of white wine we went through. Um, <laughs> so Richard then um, became the artistic director and of course presided over the wonderful The Wharf and all of that. And um, so 10 years later, um, I auditioned for Richard for um, The Crucible and he said... Um, uh, you haven't worked here for, I said, 10 years, Richard. Because <laughs> he'd left the STC. It was his first production. Back as a freelance. After, yeah. Just as a freelance. And he was able, I think he felt quite free, could direct. He'd always wanted to do The Crucible, not knowing it was on the school syllabus. So it was, um, it was, uh, became, so he did a second season. Then I did many, many, that production with um, Brian Thompson's fantastic set and, and Nigel Levings' lighting um, that Stuart Campbell used to talk about. Lovely, Stuart would say, gloomy levings. <laughs> it's always dark. <laughs> and I'd say, it's wonderful, Stuart, because Stuart and I knew each other at NIDA, and we did the Marabit Shrew together in the Young Tote Company. He played Petruchio. He was great to work with. I love Stuart. I've got a lovely picture, actually, a portrait of Alex, because they did the maids and all male maids together, and Alex was Madame. They were very good friends, and Alex did a lot of, Stuart did a lot of portraits of Alex. I've got a beautiful one. That Stuart gave me after Alex died. Stuart Campbell, of course, an iconic photographer. Oh, oh yes. Actors' headshots. Yes, uh, well, yes. Yeah, <laughs> for many, many years. <laughs>
Yeah. Great so. characters. Um, Anthony Scher's Year of the King. You've obviously read that. I did. I mean, that's a, an actor-specific process on a role. Yes, and I also loved his book on his show on Primo Levi. Um, I, the, I, was, I was fascinated by the um, Year of the King because, of course, Penny Down is mentioned, and Penny was the year. Penny was in Stuart's year at NIDA, and she was the year ahead. We were very good friends, Penny and I, because we worked together in the Young Tote Company. Um, I remember she went on for um, Richard must have been directing Streetcar around that time, and Jackie Weaver played Stella, and. Um, Penny went on for Jackie one night, and Robin, of course, was um, Blanche, and Hugo, Hugh Keysburn was oh, Stanley. Stanley, yeah, and I forget who played the other roles, but yes. Um, and Rob, Robin as in uh, Nevin. Robin Nevin, right. or she played Blanche. Right. And uh, so, um, yeah, all the different... Um, so Penny Downey, uh, just, she wasn't English, she was Australian. No, she was Australian. But and went to the UK. And well, she went to the UK after, she did a play called Map of the World that um, David Hare came out to direct and Penny went after after that production in Australia she went back to London and of course she's had a, an extremely distinguished career um, in the UK in um, stage um, television film um, and I think she was in Australia I think she went to NIDA and gave a bit of a talk not all that long ago but we were very very close friends I've got um one always has these like bags of letters. A friend of mine from NIDA, Jackie Karen, who's in town, she visited. And of course, there's a period where everybody's writing. I'm, I, still, I still like sending things. I was in, um, to, in um, sending some mail from um, Japan recently in an onsen in Gunma Prefecture in the mountains. And I came down to this old-fashioned red um, postbox in my yukata, in my shoes. And I had a like a, like a, almost like an accordion-sized lot of postcards to send. And they were amazed and they insisted on taking a photo because, I, I, I mean, I love sending. I like it that you can come back and there's time goes past. And I like to remember the card and get sort of obsessive <laughs> about that. But I, I do like mail. And so I've still got all these letters from, like, Jackie, because, um, you know, in her travels around, like, working in different places and on film. And uh, she did a horror film called Next of Kin, and they've just recently released that on Blu-ray because apparently Quentin Tarantino's is one of his favourite horror films. And uh, so, um, and, and Penny, Penny and I were very close for a long time. And of course, you, then you're close, then you're not close. But there's always, I mean, there, there is a connection. Some people you don't feel you have as much in common as you may have. But some people, like you and I, I mean, we, we've really only worked together once. once. Um, but it was a wonderful experience, and and it's about a shared um, sensibility, I suppose, and a shared love for what you're doing, and that can weather lots of storms, and an interest in talking about things, yeah. um, and reading about things. Yeah. I mean, I'm basically a. I mean, when we did Pierre Gint, um, I was always coming in. Did you know? And what about this? And maybe it's oh, I've never known an actor to do research as much as you do. It's yes. like just it's fun, you know. That was that was the um, the, the thing that hit me about you, uh, the actor's research. You really delve forensically into. Yes, I should have been a research, private detective. Don't you? Yeah, yeah. I have trailed people in the street. But even through the season, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, the play we did was Rope, and um, your character was. Well, what's her name? She didn't speak. She didn't speak, but but you were constantly reading books. Well, about I read all the of Patrick time. Hamilton's books. Yeah, yeah. I read all his novels and I found him fascinating. 
you I, obviously find research yeah well, I love essential it essential well, to the actors well yes but I still remember when um, when I did Queen Christina at the New which was my first play at the New and Kevin um, Jackson directed it and uh, Pam Gems is a wonderful play I don't think it's ever been done we did the first as the New often did and the history of the New is full of premiere seasons of plays which should have been done and weren't done by major companies so I hadn't done a play I'd married I had my two boys and I hadn't done a play for six years I'd done I did Joe's Jewelry for the um, uh, ABC, Ken Cameron, magnificent, fantastic um, drama documentary. I played the juror that was a bit of a nightmare. And um, John Howard and I were in it. And I had to throw some pencils at John. And John and I had just done two seasons of The Crucible, husband and wife. And John said, I think you'll enjoy throwing those pencils, Elaine. I said, oh, maybe. <laughs> and uh, all theatre actors in that. And so... Um, uh, so I'd done that, and I also did The Disappearance of Azaria Chamberlain, a drama documentary. Had to be called a drama documentary, because it was all transcript. I, all, everything I said was um, from court and interviews. Um, Frank Morehouse did the, um, the script, and lovely, wonderful Judy Reimer, a wonderful documentary filmmaker. She was the director. And, um, uh, but Frank made up a scene that was not... It was his imagination, so that caused a bit of trouble in terms of the screening of it. Anyway, so I'd done that, but I hadn't been on stage for six years. And I was living at, um, where I still live at Enmore, and someone said, oh, what about new theatre? And, and I went, oh, and I, so I walked down and um, into the foyer. I saw all these amazing plays, because I love good writing, you know, and, and I thought, wow. And I put my, and I went down for the first thing, was a, a workshop of a sing play, Riders to the Sea. And I went into the, that foyer, they were auditioning, the director shall be nameless. And he didn't ask, I couldn't get anything. And he invited me to be one of the keeners, you know, just the, the random keeners. Or well, maybe at the Abbey it would have been good to be a keener. But I wasn't sure it was such a good thing. <laughs> and um, with my background. And so, um, my partner said, he said, you should have said, I'm not keen on keening. And just said, <laughs> and I did, well, I was too shocked. And I walked up King Street almost sobbing, thinking, oh, I can't even get Has it come to this? the job. <laughs> and, you know, sort of the keeners in Riders to the Sea. And then I saw, but I joined the theatre and I saw Queen Christina. And uh, I thought, oh, and I read, I thought, wow. But on stage all night and terrifying. And I put my name down. And uh, I walked into the room, because Kevin and I walked, obviously worked a lot together. I worked with Kevin before I went to NIDA. He directed a student production of The Censi, and I played Beatrice. And then he was, of course, one of the founding members of the Q Theatre. So I'd worked a lot with Kevin, but we hadn't seen each other for a while. Kevin Jackson. Kevin Jackson. And so I got the part. But I would normally, I had to stop doing, I thought, I can't, I've got to stop researching. I've got to stop, because... Um, I've got to learn my lines. It was like, I had so many lines. And it was, and I thought, no, no, I can't, I can't, I can't. So I had to do a bit of a deal, learn my lines. And, but that was the first time I'd had a conflict. And, and I remember when, so that was, um, and I did The Crucible after that. Uh, and uh, I remember being at home with Nick and Ed and my, my boys and, and I envied. I, I thought, my God, where, where are the days when you'd go to rehearsal and come home just lie back and do nothing, just, you know, do lines, read. I've got two boys and <laughs> make dinner. 
Um, my husband's not home from work, and so I turned the dinner into a kind of a... My, I don't think Nicholas and Edward really liked it a great deal, although I still have some beautiful, a beautiful card. Nick um, did me a big card for the opening night of the cruise with witches flying through the air, and, and I'd be sort of a bit in character using my accent during dinner, you know, with a black country accent. Then I'd rush off and come home, and um, but, but in the end... Of course, it gave you a, my, me a whole new perspective. Having a beautiful family, um, it does change. It does change the way you feel about your work. Do you find that, that sometimes with a role there is a bit of residue uh, that that you take home with you of the character? Um, sometimes, yes. I think sometimes um, there's grief. Sometimes the tension, the nervous tension. Well, the women of Lockerbie. Yeah, women of Lockerbie. Yeah, and and you've got to go to places where you where you you wouldn't normally go. I mean, I I look away. I'm a great one for looking away if I don't want to remember something. Um, or I don't think I need to see that. But I I had to read, of course, about about that plane crash, and it's, it becomes very personal. But you also, I mean, I know people have never forgotten that production. It's heartbreaking. But then the other side of that plays, of course. The women, the laundry project, who lovingly washed anything they could find. For those of um, anyone listening who doesn't know that play, it's about a, a husband and wife. Their son has died because I still remember when that happened. I was it was just before Christmas, and and uh, so they have no nothing of their son. So the mother goes back. She wants something for the son, and they find a suitcase, just something some sign of their son and they find it there's no clothes and there's this suitcase and and they embrace the suitcase at the end and it's really really heartbreaking but of course it's a tricky line Pete I mean after it often is one is mostly exhausted as it as when things happen in life um real life things happen there's a, 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 a huge level of exhaustion but I remember one um, or, uh, rehearsal of The Crucible. It must have been our first run. It was pretty exciting. All these fantastic actors. And, and there was a scene, maybe it wasn't a run, maybe it was a rehearsal, and that wonderful scene at the end when John Proctor and Elizabeth and, you know, I've closed my heart up and I have to open it up. And, um, and, uh, and, and I, I could hardly speak, you know. And, I, so, and, and Rich, I remember Richard coming up putting his arm around me and saying, well, Elaine, not much acting there. It actually wasn't a, that wasn't a compliment, I realised later. And um, of course, we did, there was a, we, when we did the season, I always cried on stage. I, was, I, I never had no difficulty identifying emotionally with that play. And I was able to speak. It's no point not being able to speak. And Richard said, you didn't, um, you didn't cry tonight, Elaine. I said, I said, I said, yes, I did. He said, I couldn't hear you. I went, oh. So that kind of level of, um, of, of artifice. So, yes, yes, you were crying, but the audience couldn't hear you crying. And that's what's important. Alex would always say that too. I don't care if, I mean, it's the audience that should be crying. But as an actor, you do like, I used to worry that, you, I still, that I won't feel what I'm meant to feel. But I sort of got over that. I mean, when we were at NIDA, Glenda Jackson came. She was, that was a very important day. She came. Every second word, of course, was a swear word. And we were like, oh, madly. And, and Jackie Karen, who I mentioned earlier, 
we found out she liked Twining's Lemon Scented Tea. And I remember, and Twining's Lemon Scented was kind of exotic back in the 70s at NIDA. And so we got, we got a tea bag. And I sort of remember us walking behind her, this tea bag was some sort of offering to the goddess. <laughs> and she, um, she was on stage with, um, with that cast from Hedda Gabler. Um, would have been Timothy, Timothy West, Jenny Linden, forget the other actor. So they were touring. Yeah, they were here. A lot of, that was that what is now gone, the Elizabethan Theatre. She did her reviews. We loved. I loved her, but she talked about research and about um, doing all the work, but then coming out on stage, just forgetting it all, just forgetting it, and just doing it. And that was that was use, very useful to me because in the end, uh, in the end, that's what you do. You go out, and it's diff- has to be a little bit different every night. That can be a bit perilous. I'm not unknown for. Um, changing things but um and some actors like that and some don't still remember doing um with lovely redmond phillips who's no longer here shoemaker's holiday that john walton was in and there was this great i was sib hoare peter collingwood directed it and i'd just done um marjorie pinchwife um for my graduation play at nida that john clark directed and i was having trouble in rehearsal and and i said to peter and peter said i said peter i don't i just don't want to repeat marjorie pinchwife and he said Elaine, that's exactly what I want you to do. I mean, oh. So I did anyway. I was, I was, and I and Redmond was the family retainer, and he had this fantastic black velvet hat. It must have fallen off, and I picked it up, and he went to pick it up. We had this tug of war. I thought it was great. It was great. And at the curtain call, the curtain comes down in the drama theatre, and I turned to Redmond to say, "Wasn't that great?" And he turned to me to say, "Don't you ever do that again." <laughs> So you learn to um, act as some... I like to feel that it... Living in the moment. You're living in the moment. And I, and I noticed that when we did um, Streetcar, um, Liv Allman's production at the Sydney Theatre Company that Kate Blanchett played um, Blanche and was, had a season here, went to um, um, Washington, and uh, um, Jill Biden was the special guest after, and about 100... Plastic cups of Verve Clicquot, which I thought wasn't quite right. Um, so um, anyway, she was there. Everybody wanted, of course, Barack Obama to come. But now, of course, we're very pleased you came. Yes. Um, that was at the Kennedy Center. Kennedy Center, yeah. yeah. And so, um, and then, um, uh, so then we went to BAM. And I was, because I came on like right in the last, gosh, it was the last seven minutes with Russell Kiefel, Strange Man and Strange Woman. Now, this is a three-hour play. I guess, yeah, and it's it? very weird feeling, Pete, to come on stage when the audiences live with the play. Why I mentioned this because I would wait backstage. Gertrude Ingeborg, who played the Flores, Flores character, we shared dressing room. And so we'd we'd practice. Joel had all these um, boxing equipment set up backstage. Joel so, so Joel, so Joel said, you know, so we'd, I'd have, we'd do boxing and we'd do exercises and because we had a whole first half. And then we'd go on and I'd listen um, well, I'd be back, backstage listening. In the Sydney, at the Ross Packer, I spent a lot of time picking up the pieces of gold that had fallen from the ceiling for that play with the one, what was the one with Kate Richard II, all that amalgam of... Um, War of the Roses. Yeah, so I kept, and I had a suitcase, so all those bits of gold went with me to to um, to the state, so a bit of a connection to Sydney. They were still hanging around. They were still hanging around everywhere, all secreted in little <laughs> nooks and crannies, so that amused me for a bit. But I, But Kate... I mean, Kate, I noticed that she never really, she obviously, obviously similarities, but she, but she did keep exploring that role. It was, it was always a little bit different. And I really admired that. 
And I think it is very important because that takes, well, it takes great presence, it takes courage, because it's, it, it's, it, I mean, it's safer, of course, I mean, to repeat. And, and repeating's not bad either. I mean, repeat. So when the French word répétition is you repeat it. So there's an element of repetition. And I mean, the Catholic mass, to go back to, in a way, my origins, I used to always be amazed. I thought, surely they've learnt their lines by now. You know, like, always the book is there. So they're reading it, which means that there's something always a bit beyond, a bit out of their grasp. And I was always amused by the nuns at Monty. They never owned anything on their books. It was always for the use of Sister Geraldine. They didn't own it. So in a way doing these plays, you don't totally own anything about it, but you are, you're living in that world for a time with all that you have and what you bring to it. I mean, I used to always think, oh, could, when, when you, you do a part because you think, ah, oh, there's something I can bring to it that maybe no one else can bring to it. But sometimes you discover things about yourself through a play that you didn't really know about yourself. It's quite clear from a play, ah, oh, that's why I relate to that, because then it may not be a part of your psychology that is totally admirable. <laughs> From a contemporary perspective, it's amazing, isn't it, to think a playwright like Tennessee Williams could introduce two characters in the last seven minutes of oh, yeah. the play. There was the, um, the, the opportunity and ability to do that in a theatre. Well, the it's extraordinary. And, and when I auditioned for Leave, uh, because... How do you prepare for it? But, of course, the big preparation for that role was um, Rose, Tennessee's sister, Rose, who had the lobotomy. Mm -hmm. And he was, of course, there's that story, I must have read it in an article in The New Yorker, big occasion, some sort of ceremony, and he brought his sister, and he got up, he said nothing. He introduced his sister, and he said, who had a lobotomy in particular year. He always felt um, guilty that he didn't stop it. He, he didn't, it just happened, I mean, as it did. And there's a wonderful film called The Snake Pit that Gertrude and I went and saw at the film school, which is about a woman who suddenly finds herself in a mental institution, a bit like Janet Frame, remember? She was about to have that operation. And the doctor saw a review for something she'd written and came in anyway. So I did a lot of reading about Tennessee and the sister. So I prepared, prepared, prepared. And I go in and um, Eloise Oxer was reading opposite and... Um, and leaves there, and and um, and I said, you realise, Liv, I'm really not good casting for this role. <laughs> I said, she's meant to be really big, like physically big and strong, so she could wrestle with yeah, patients, big, yeah. like. But and I and that's sort of like, and and Liv said, oh, Elaine, I think you can be big. <laughs> so I, <laughs> but I was the exact opposite, you know. I was I was tiny, and so Russell and I. But we'd wait, and, and I remember a friend of mine who shall be nameless, a writer friend. Because I used to have to, have to say, um, um, hello, Blanche, or something like that. And, uh, and uh, my friend said, um, oh, Elaine, wouldn't it be terrible if you went out and said, hello, Kate? <laughs> I said, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> and I remember in Washington one night, because you know something could take you over. Yeah. And I'm thinking, ah, no, no, don't say that. Because just, I saw more of Kate as Kate. Um, like all backstage and she's a wonderful company member so you sort of have a lot to do with each other and so it never happened thank 
God. <laughs> when, when would you start to prepare for the performance um, around interval? Because you'd have to time yourself, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, so be, 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 we would, I, the first half we'd do work out on Joel's equipment <laughs> and um, read. We, had, we were the, the most well-equipped dressing room because Catrade reads in three languages. I read in, you might read in four. So we had French books, um, Italian books, English books. She had some German books. We had any, any number of books in our room. And we were always, we always, I, I always used to find great bars in New York and, um, uh, and in Washington. So I was, I was quite good at finding, I didn't go to bars in Sydney, but when I travel, it's one of my favourite places, to have a martini in a bar somewhere. Um, so, and then I'd have my hair done. Um, Lauren would do my hair before, this exotic hairstyle, which I'd copied from the snake pit because I found out that the people that worked in those places had hair and makeup. But the people who were there, because they were unwell, they were they were, had to, that, was, that was all stripped away from them. So that actually helped me create my my hairstyle. The only note I ever got from a lighting designer, Nick Schlieper, said, "Elaine, could you stand back a bit? Your hair is blocking the light." <laughs> he knocked on the door. Okay, sorry. Uh, so um, uh, and then then the second half, I would I would backstage for quite a long time. As an actor, I don't. Dressing rooms can be perilous places for the kind of chat you don't want to hear. So I tend to spend most of the time when I'm doing... Often I'm on stage a lot, but when I'm not on stage, I tend to um, be backstage listening or find myself a place where I can be focused on the play. Uh, the first, one of the smallest roles I did was... I did Doll's House. That Miranda Otto was stunning as Nora. And Robin directed it, and I played the nanny. And being the Sydney Theatre Company, they could afford to play someone to play the nanny. And the housekeeper, Alice Livingston, played the housekeeper. I was the nanny. And, of course, there's a very important scene in that play, which you don't get if you join the two characters. Nora, before she leaves, asks um, the nanny how it felt for her to abandon... I left my children to look after her children. So I'd... Um, I'd prepare for that. I had these three lovely children. I'd make them a lovely ice stick and I'd make their cheeks all pink so when they ran on, Miranda could kiss them and their cheeks would be a bit cold. And I made the macaroons because they couldn't find anything that the actors didn't choke on. So I made these beautiful little meringues every night. So I did a lot of stuff. But I remember when I finished my role, I would go and lie down in my corset as much as I could breathe. And I'd panic. I think, oh, no, no, I'm meant to be on stage. But of course, I wasn't due back on stage till the curtain call. So, um, yeah, so there you go. Um, back to actors' books again. Um, yes. Uh, from, from the home front, I just read David Williamson's memoir, Home Truths. Ah, I've not read that. Have you ever done any Williamson? Yes, I did. Um, I did Travelling North and What If You Died Tomorrow. I did both of them at the queue. And I remember I had done Ghosts, my first Ibsen with Kevin directing. And I played Regina. Paula Van Deer played Mrs. Arving, Bill Conn um, played Oswald. Um, and it was my first experience of in Ibsen and the depths in Ibsen. And the very next play was What If You Died Tomorrow, which was the play that opened the Opera House. Max Phipps, probably Ron Hadrick. It was when he's an agent, Harry Bustle. It's full of four-letter words. Um, so, I, when I, so I rehearsed it. And I found it really, really hard. I, it seemed really like, I mean, having grown up on the Northern Beaches, it, seemed like a really a wading pool um, and I was a bit I couldn't get myself into it and then the audience came in and then of course I thought ah 
the response and the uh, the identification was immediate. So then I I, lo I loved doing the play, but I didn't. Maybe it would be different now, but I didn't. I found it hard to because I'm used to doing all this other work on a play, and I and the Ibsen was so intense, so much nervous energy required for the Ibsen, and then so I did that, and then of course we did Traveling North, lovely Judith Fisher. Um, Judith was. She was in the first production of Don's Party, um, died way too young. She was the most wonderful person. Um, and Ron Hackett played the husband. And um, Deb Deborah Masters, who's now very distinguished um, television producer, she was one of the sisters. She and I were the sisters. And, uh, and I loved doing that. Actually, I, well, it's a different sort of play. And um, Doreen was directing it. And Doreen Warburton. Because yeah. we did a lot, because Doreen, of course, you know, she ran that theatre, this magnificent enterprise at Penrith, having worked in um, for Theatre Workshop, and Arthur Dix, of course. Arthur Dix, who was also at NIDA, who became a great friend. We did, um, Arthur, we worked a lot together. He was one of the founding members. And um, Doreen played Lady Bracknell in um, Alex directed The Importance of Being Artists. So Kevin was Jack. I was um, Cecily. Judy Davis was Gwendolyn. Um, Gay Anderson was Miss Prism, uh, Alan Brell was um, Chosy Ball, and uh, that was fantastic, really great, great, and Bill Conn was Algernon, um, was great, great, great experience. I mean, that play, you'd feel smarter when you do that play, you feel really bright, and that same year I did Caucasian Chalk Circle, so the thrill of being in two great plays, even though I think we know now that Bertolt Brecht didn't write Caucasian Chalk Circle, um, however, you felt... You were in a great play, like the world of the play was great. And that's the thrill of theatre, isn't it? You just feel you're in something greater than yourself. And then the audience comes and it goes into their lives, I mean, in ways that you can't even imagine. It's a real, I think I always felt that I had a great singing teacher for a while, Florence Taylor, who's a very distinguished Australian mezzo. And she said, I had singing lessons with her. And remember, I don't read reviews. I because I was badly scarred by a review in Mrs. Warren's profession that I did at the queue. <gasps> it was so terrible. So I stopped reading. I don't read reviews. As a director, I read reviews. Do you remember what the review said? Well, uh, or you don't want to share uh, it. No, you've, I don't. You've blocked it. It was, it was awful. <laughs> and I mean, Alex Hay, director, she rang me just to see how I was doing. Because it was in the Sydney Morning Herald. Fantastic picture of me. And it was really terrible. And, um, and so, uh, I, and I, I got a, sort of got over it, but I didn't read a review. Then, I, of course, I go to the theatre. It's pasted up in the notice board, in the, in the dressing room and all of that. So I don't read reviews. But I remember the, for The Crucible, that rave reviews, of course, and um, Florence Taylor, she made me sit down because we'd worked a bit on the play together. She sat me down and she read the review to me because she thought it was important that you know that it was good. But, but that was the only time I broke my rule. Um, but she said to me, she grew up, she was the daughter of missionaries. She grew up in um, Samurai... A little island, Samurai New Guinea, uh, Papua, as she called it, only child. And on her birthday, she said her mother would bake loaves of bread and she had to give things away to everyone before she got her present. And she used to say that when you're performing, something has to be part of you before you can give it away. So I think that's a very important thing to think of because it's like when you give a present and you think, ah... I'd like to keep that present. <laughs> and I think that's just a good sign because, you, you know, you'd like to keep it for yourself. So you, there's something about the present. But 
it's, it, you love the present, it's part of you, um, so you're happy to give it away. So often you like to feel you've created all the circumstances where you can be m most present in the world of the play. So the research helps you do that and relationships with other actors and working with um, people who share somehow a sensibility. In one of the last, the two last plays I did, I did with Philippe Klaus, um, who's a Whopper grad. And we did the wonderful play Mummy in the IED about the um, young man coming back from Afghanistan. Kevin directed it and Roger Vickery and James Ballion wrote it. And I played the mother and it was a heart heartbreaking play. And so, but Philippe, I'd never worked with Philippe before. And then when I was offered the role of Orsa, the mother in Pierre Gint, I couldn't help myself. I said to Christine Logan, who's just got this fantastic company, Endangered Theatre Productions, I said, um, do you have a Pierre Gint? Part of me thought, I'd love to do this play, but if you don't have a Pierre Gint, perhaps, maybe not. And uh, she said, no, can you recommend anybody? And so, of course, I recommended Philippe. And um, so it was the second play we'd done together. And that's the beauty. It doesn't happen enough in our theatre world. You do a play again, because we've never ever managed to have a theatre company, as everyone is. Everyone talks about it. It happens occasionally, and we do tend to hook up with certain people. But it's something, there's something about doing another... So Philippe and I had already worked together. It doesn't, and it was a great experience. And he's, um, he grew up um, he grew up in the world of ballet. He's a wonderful musician as well. And what I, when I suggested him, I didn't realise, of course, he'd grown up with Pierre Gent as a child, because his dad, François Klaus, was a great um, choreographer. So, and François and Robin, his parents came. Robin's a dancer and works in ballet. And she said to me, um, uh, when Philippe was a child, he knew that music. So when I suggested him, I just had a feeling. Um, and it turned out this fantastic. And here he is, a young actor, you know, and he's doing this role that he would not have got a chance to play. And so that isn't, you can't, and with an orchestra and a choir on stage with all this music and it like children screaming and being encouraged to bite the Troll King's bum and, and actors and non-actors and... It was thrilling experience. And I thought, this is what theatre, this is why I went into theatre. It's like a big family. And it's, the dressing room was wonderful. The Troll King did get a bit cross with the kids running everywhere. But he kept his temper. That's lovely. Um, uh, Alan Faulkner, who said to me one night, because I died just before interval. He said, oh, how was it, Elaine? How was it? I said, Alan, I just died. How do you think it was? How do you think I feel? He said, oh, yes, 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 of course, of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that was, that was my first, um, doing Pierre Gint um, this year and then going to Japan to do a, a film. I acted in a film with Roger Pulvers, an all-Japanese crew and a Japanese actor, Tamaoki Reo. A script that Roger wrote for the theatre many years ago called Joe's Encyclopedia. The other character doesn't speak, so that's a good Japanese actor play that role. It's an unusual script. And I played um, Gloria um, in this script. It's actually been not set many festivals and 24 minutes, um, and it looks beautiful. Now I'm on this, so that, a different world, the film world. And there's nothing like, like the theatre world, the Pierre Gint world, this everybody working together. You feel that more acutely in film because you've got a, usually a smaller group of people in this little house in, um, in Sejo, a suburb, the film district of Tokyo. You got everybody focused. The art director moving a pen just slightly so it looks right, and and it's just thrilling. And you feel a great sense of um, privilege 
that chance has meant that you know you know this person they've offered you this job they they said oh we'd like to do something and, and finally you do do something and you get special visas people make things happen and it's never accidental of course I mean it's probably always um, you're going to always hook up with the people with whom you feel some sort of alliance because you always it's scary working with people I mean scary I think doing interviews you think ah will, how will it go and um, and sometimes I always find it fascinating looking at a rehearsal and you get, even as a director, which is scarier, way scarier, you never really know, you could never really plot your course to that opening night. Like life, like if you looked at your life um, outside it, even though obviously a, there, is a, is, there is a probably a, a divinity shapes our ends, probably, but um, sometimes there's no divinity in particular rehearsal periods, it's just chaos and trauma but maybe there's a divinity for that as well but but it's, it is always a miracle to me that journey you take and the courage it takes and um the love it takes and um so yeah that's it's it's i always think it's think it's thrilling always thrilling I, when it goes well it goes really well always that time that you were you were training to be an actor at nida we're talking about the 60s no 70s i was there from 73 to 75 right, right. But you're being guided um, and encouraged and nurtured by a lot of practitioners who had come from the UK and, and Europe. You know, you talk about Arthur Dix and yeah, Arthur Dix, Dorian yeah. Warburton and um, Alexander, Alexander Hay. Alexander They were really crucial to the development of Australian theatre, weren't they? Well, yes, because Ale well, Alexander Hay was... They brought an understanding of style, style and, and repertoire. But also they were theatre practitioners. I mean, Alex, Alex knew what it was... To be an actor, I mean, in um, in England, I mean, I've got lots of his theatre photos. He went to the RADA, as he used to always call it. Claude Rains was his acting teacher, um, and the and and um, who's the actress? Um, who was it? Gwendolyn in the famous film with Michael Redgrave of um, of um, Ernest. Of Ernest, she had a very very deep voice. Oh, they were they were in the same year at at um, at, um, at RADA, and there's a fantastic Alex did a fantastic interview. Uh, and uh, about he was taught by the Vanbrugh sisters, and the Vanbrugh sisters taught him. Um, he tells all his stories. It was like we were like riveted. Um, uh, the Vanbrugh sisters, Irene and what was the other one? They would teach laughing and tea drinking, and uh, and Alex would. <laughs> well, it's important to know how. It's to, very important to do both. Very on stage. important. <laughs> so Alex would Alex would he would go and and he'd mimic. Uh, he would do it much better than me. And he'd go. He'd mimic. Um, one of the van was going, oh, ha, 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 ha. No, on a kind of, oh, ha, 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 ha. And then she would say, there's nothing artificial about that. <laughs> and Alex would say, of course, it's very artificial. And he talked about a teacher who never knew my name. And he, and he didn't come from a theatre background. But So then, and then, of course, he went and he worked in Scotland. He worked with... Um, um, Anu McMaster, who most people would know about, there was a great book recently called *The Actress* by Anne Enright, which got a lot of publicity. I think it's being made into a film, and it's there's an actress, a main an actress. She's the heart of the story, and I was reading it, and she works with Anu McMaster in um, Ireland because he had a touring company. And I thought, oh my God, Alex used to talk about Anu McMaster, and Alex was a, playing a small part in Alec, in Anu McMaster's production of *Othello*. And apparently Anu McMaster would say, there's a line, I don't know Othello very well, uh, and he would say, um, uh, there's a line, man is but a rush against Othello's breast. And he'd have his 
something tipping the footlights up so they'd catch his face while he was doing it. And Alex, young actor, said, uh, "No, uh, sir, it's a. It actually isn't. Man is but a rush against. It is man but a rush against Othello's breast." And then, and then you said, "Yes, yes, dear, yes, dear. But man is but a rush." <laughs> and also, Alex worked with Donald Bulford. When Alex got a very good review, so Donald called him in for an early rehearsal, reblocked the entire scene with Alex right over, almost in the stage management box. <laughs> Alexander Hay played uh, George in that original. Alex was the first George. Wolf. Alex John, John Clark's production. John Clark's production with Jackie Cott and um, uh, the Alex had a huge connection to Orby, loved Orby, and we did. Uh, in my second year of NIDA, we did the first production in Australia of All Over. No character below the age of 60, so we're all in our 20s. I played, we did it at Jane Street. It was one of the most thrilling experiences. Aubrey Mellor saw it and then the next year directed it for the Belvoir. And there's two big um, sections. My character was the wife and there was the doctor, the wife, the best friend, the son. Geoffrey Williams played the son who had the most impossible direction He's sick because the dad's dying upstage. The husband dying. We know he doesn't speak, of course. Jeffrey had come on, tears pouring down his face because he'd found his father's shaving equipment. Well, I don't think he ever did that. Well, how can you, you know? And so, um, but we did that and we had this dreadful latex. <laughs> Terrible, really. All this latex makeup. But it was thrilling. Huge monologues, you know. But that was the very, very first production of that play in Australia that we did. Um, so I wouldn't have got that opportunity. Um, and I had a big crying scene at the end and I was avoiding doing it. And I said, I think you'll have to start. There was a huge crying scene and a huge laughing scene. And Aubrey, when he directed it at the NIM, was all, the, all these fantastic, Mark, all these wonderful radio actors were in it. Um, and Aubrey, the first rehearsal, of course, they did everything. <laughs> they did everything perfectly. <laughs> I think Aubrey said he thought, hmm. We've got six weeks ahead of us. How are we, What are we going to do in rehearsal? Because they were all these brilliant radio actors who were used to doing like stuff straight away. Um, it's interesting. Um, I heard um, Ken Boucher died recently and uh, he loved a play about radio written by Sumner Locke Elliott called Invisible Circus. And those actors, we did it at the... Um, the new Ken directed it. And it's all about that world of the radio actors brilliant you know just able to act 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 they were stunning so um yeah a, a great actor that you worked with also was Dinah Shearing well Dinah I grew to love you know I didn't really I worked with her at Actors Forum uh she rang me to see would I be in Letters and Lovage and Judy Farr it was a it was wonderful um, Actors Forum readings and I'd never um well of course I'd seen her and and she, um, a great, 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 great actress, and I knew a lot about her. And she and I, I just adored working with her, and we became friends after. She was the most extraordinary person. Uh, yeah, I saw her not long before she died, and just beautiful, beautiful woman. And married, of course, to um, Rodney Milgate, wonderful, wonderful artist, and you organized an exhibition of his paintings. She had all these paintings, what are we gonna do with all these paintings? But she, I think that older actors, I've always, I suppose, I've always, I've said for older act characters at NIDA, but 
and older people have always been important in my life. I think that's one that in, in often in, I mean, I don't know if maybe some countries manage it better, but we don't seem to manage very well, it seems to me. Um, looking after um, artists over an entire lifetime, because I think it's important to see, I mean, when we did The Crucible, um, the youngest actress was, I think, um, uh, Kim, Kim Wilson, played, and the oldest was actress, lovely Basil Clark, who came on, lovely Basil. And so we got this enormous. So you see, I know that's a different those sort of plays like Kennedy Williams, right? Having an actor come on just in the last seven minutes, but you see the whole world on the stage. I mean, as a reader, you get that experience more often in great literature, but in the theatre, you don't often you don't often get it anymore. Although seeing the play the other night at the um, at the stables. Um, Ash, end, end of, end Ash, of. Ash, yeah. Ash Flanders is wonderful wonderful stuff about his mother and I love that because that mix of his own like stories about you know standing ovation of 30 and playing to nobody and um, and and balancing your own life with 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 the theater life like leaving his mother and distraught and going he knew not where and then said but he's due back on stage in that light-hearted play about being the personal the um the the store running barbara streisand shop and the audience never know that you know they never i mean in life i always think it's in life suddenly you have someone come into a room like the um one of my other favorite books is the one about the lunts um uh, the um and uh what the, the um alfred um and uh Lynn Fontaine. Lynn Fontaine and Alfred And they were, there's, that's a fantastic book about them. And uh, there was that direction, enter having had a cup of tea. And I'm thinking, <laughs> how, do you, how do you show that? I don't know. You've burnt your tongue. I've got no idea. But, but then I thought, well, that's like life, you know. People come into a room and you've got no idea, really no idea what's happened before that person has entered the room. But inevitably it's part of them. So when an actor walks out on stage, I mean, it's more obvious in Ash's play because it's part of the text of the play. But how the alchemy of how he... Because he, it isn't life, it is a theatrical event. So um, it's a mystery, really, that, that, that alchemy of creating something from your life. And that's why I think a lot of people, actors, are often buried out of town and not terribly desirable people because when do you know if an actor is really telling you the truth? You know, something about an actor, and I can. That's why people think, well, you know, they're an actor. You know, do I really know if they're what they're saying? Do they, do I really believe what they're saying? Because they lie for a living. It's, it's about the illusion of truth. It's the illusion of yeah. yeah, but I mean, maybe I I like lying, <laughs> and it's an escape. I used to love like the mystery of theatre. Even at school, I used to like well, those black curtains and just. You feel. I remember it when I did Caucasian Chalk Circle. I, I think I was a bit nervous, really, and I, I thought maybe I could come out on stage and no one will see me. I can just creep on. <laughs> but of course, you're totally visible, and that's a bit unnerving. I don't think I've ever really come to terms with. That's probably why I don't read reviews. Like people, the idea that people are seeing you, but part of you always feels irrevocably private when you're on. I do when you're on stage. There's part of you. It feels totally private, so I'm not. I'm a. 
I remember when I did Joe's Jury, Ken Cameron, he asked us all to keep a diary and, and at the rap party he said, Elaine, you're the only actor that didn't give me some sort of idea. And I said, well, Ken, I didn't think it was any of your business. <laughs> also, it was part of the character too. But I'm kind of, I am a bit precious about, or precious, private about, I'm, not, I'm an actor that I love to talk, if you can hear, but I don't like to do a lot of talking in a rehearsal room. I like to work in a rehearsal room. Remember John Howard and I, we've worked on The Crucible, we did Joe's Jury, the only two times we worked together. We don't really talk a great deal. Philippe and I didn't talk a great deal. But it's all in, in the work. I prefer to, to work, not talk about the work. I don't have a lot of patience with actors who endlessly analyse, sometimes actors who are analysing a scene as you're walking off the stage or in a foyer saying quite publicly that they didn't think it was very good that night and I hate that. Even if I think I wasn't, I go home and I think, ah, oh, maybe that, but I will never in a theatre foyer say to someone who's come, oh, it wasn't very good tonight, oh, why did you come tonight? I hate that because I feel that it is what it is. Or people say to me, oh, should we come later in the season when it's good? I think, come whenever you like, I don't care. It's going to be good at every. It's going to be good anyway, and 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 it's. I find it not a really acceptable question, because it's. It seems ignorant to me. It shows a lack of understanding, of the theatre. And how it all works. And how it all works. And as a humans, we're shaped by our experiences as uh, our characters. Yes. Yeah, indeed. Um, yeah. At the other end of the spectrum is is what's ahead of us. What is ahead of the character? I find it yeah. quite quite depressing sometimes that that character ceases to be at, yes. the, at the end of a play. Yes. Whereas we go on, and we don't know what's about to happen in twenty four hours, in an hour, no, or, I know. or in ten minutes. And that's um, the power of it. You see, you have comp- it's the illusion of power. And I, I mean, coming from a sporting background, I also felt that um, sports. I mean, I've been at quite a few grand finals where. Well, one critical one, where Manly lost against Newcastle. That's my. I went to a lot of football. My brother's huge family of boys in my family, the only daughter, and all football games. And it seemed like to lose on the bell, but but it seemed crueler. Sports seemed crueler. And I thought theatre. There are no obvious winners and losers, are there? And then I thought I began to think. Hmm, I'm not so sure about that <laughs> because it didn't seem theatre seemed more like life. It wasn't cut and dried. Of course, it's obviously if you've lost the grand final, you've lost the grand final. But maybe if you've had a bad review on the opening night, maybe that's a bit the same. I don't know. <laughs> well, I do. I do know that in five minutes we're going to have lunch. So. Um, well, there you go, and it'll be wonderful. I know. I can smell it. Um, uh, I, I knew this would happen. I haven't referred once to my notes. Uh. <laughs> um, which is beautiful. It's, it's uh, a way to go all the time. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, Elaine, please. thank you so much for sharing. Um, uh, anecdotes of your of your last <laughs> career. Well, thank you, Pete. And, and it's been a real ple- a pleasure a and a privilege. Isn't, you've said nothing that you want me to cut out. Ah, uh, absolutely everything. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. One does censor as one goes, but no. But I think that's no, fine. That's one of the perils, isn't it? Anyway, but no, no. I'm very happy. Very happy. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. I do encourage you to seek out the theatre books we discussed in today's episode. Great reads and insight to extraordinary lives in the theatre. And there is always someone of great interest to be heard on the Stages podcast. And a variety of roles are explored and celebrated too. 
Look back through the archives and you'll get access to directors, designers and drag performers, producers, publicists and playwrights, agents and actors, choreographers and casting. Emerging talents and established legends, all available to access on Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about their craft, career and creativity. I'm Peter Eyers. Thanks for listening. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe. And I'll catch you next time on Stages.